Here's Johnny. Okay, so Matt, this is part one of our two-part Stephen King. I can't say extravaganza because it's not quite as big as Harry Potter. No, we've graduated from Hogwarts. Yes, but <laughs> this is it's quite in-depth. We are going in-depth. We've got six films to discuss today mm-hmm. and more next time. So Stephen King, for me, I was only introduced to him as an adult. and I never read Stephen King as a, as a child. Yeah. Um, probably wouldn't have been allowed to be honest. <laughs> it's quite grown up, isn't it? I know a lot of people read him as a kid and hence their fears, you know, <laughs> and why they find him so scary is is because they read him as a child, which I kind of miss out on, actually. I wish I had because that maybe I would have got that thrill. Mm. Um, but I only started with Stephen King in 2017. I don't know if I'd seen a lot of Stephen King either at that point. I'd, I'd seen The Shining. I think I'd seen Carrie and the Green Mile and his main stuff. Yeah. Um, it's only as I've got older and got more into reading and things like that that I've kind of seen the link and you just think, oh my God, this guy's prolific. Mm. And it's weird that you can kind of have your attention turned to him from the films first. You know, mm. obviously we're, we're quite filmy people and, and I guess that's what I've just started to do as well. I've just bought 13 of his books. A lot of very pretty new paperbacks. <laughs> oh, they look so good. <laughs> um, and I've just started reading The Shining. I'm about halfway through. You can tell he's got a way of writing that, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just something in the words. And I know that sounds really basic, but yeah. Well, there's a reason he's so popular. That is going to be our approach today. So we are um, going to come to the films um, from the themes, mm. um, basically. So there are a number of themes that are very much Stephen King tropes that he does very well, that he does repeatedly and come up time and time again. So that's how we're going to approach it today from the themes and how they shape the films. Yeah. So we're kicking it right off with Carrie. You can stay here with me. I don't want to stay with you, Mama. Yeah, it's weird because we covered this briefly in our quickfire Halloween episode. So I've kind of said what I wanted to say already, (laughs) but now I've got a chance to kind of elaborate. A little bit. Yeah. Um, it's a different kind of horror film in the sense that the monster isn't really the monster. Mm-hmm. So Carrie White, played by Sissy Spacek, is this innocent and gentle and she's almost angelic, you know, even in look, you know, she's this angelic schoolgirl, but she's really shy. Um, she's not particularly popular. She doesn't really fit in, um, which I think is one of Stephen King's trademarks really is it's this focus on people who are outsiders, especially young people. Mm-hmm. In the opening scene, we see her get horrifically bullied in the showers after gym class. Yeah, because um, she gets her period and she's sixteen, so it's quite you know it's quite late. But um, the way that all the other girls react and sort of push her into this corner and throw tampons at her and stuff and horrendous it's not great yeah and again links in with another huge thing is bullies and the fact that bullies are completely evil Mm. and irredeemable so bad things are going to happen to them this triggers a series of events that plays out throughout the whole film this prank that they're going to play on carrie and it's from here she starts to display these telekinetic powers and again trademark the supernatural abilities that people have Mm-hmm. arising from their inner demons. Yeah, big themes. It's a shame with Carrie, though, because she's so innocent. Yeah, I think that's what makes it more complex than just a generic horror, because there is a lot of depth there. Mm. 
Carrie isn't your normal, like you say, she's not a monster. Yeah. Um, she's driven almost to these things. The only person who really stands up for her is her gym teacher, yeah. Miss Collins, who's actually really, really good for Carrie. Um, yeah. She kind of picks her up, stands up for her, champions her, makes her feel special. And, um, you know, she's a bit of a badass, actually, because she like slaps the... Um, I call her Regina George. I think she's not called that in the film. <laughs> Proper <laughs> slaps her and stuff. She really puts them in her place, which is great. But her troubles at school are only half of the problem. So she yeah. can't just run home and escape the problems because, on the other hand... Margaret White, who is Carrie's mother, preachy, religious fanatic, another trademark, judgmental, close-minded, cruel, hypocritical witch. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much sums it up, doesn't it, really? <laughs> and she's not very supportive at all. So when the school calls home saying that this incident's happened at school, she actually beats Carrie to the ground with a Bible um, accusing her of sin. It's not funny. <laughs> accusing her of sin and then drags her through the house by her hair and into the cupboard. It's just terrible. And it's not just that she's sheltered from the world, but she's imprisoned from it. Mm-hmm. In, in terms of Carrie being the monster, it's everyone else who causes her outbursts and you just feel sorry for her. She's Frankenstein's monster, in a way. I was literally just about <laughs> to say that. Yeah. Literally took the words out of my mouth. And then the other thing I just want to talk about is the prom scene at the end. Um, this love among the stars prom and it looks so good i mean it, it reminds me of films like greece and back to the future you know where they have a school dance yeah it's magical and to carry it's magical as well even though people are still pointing fingers and giggling every now and again and she's too nervous to even do anything other than sit at a table this is freedom for her it's magic yeah uh, the closest she's ever felt to being normal in her entire life and she's with this boy tommy who seems to genuinely like her um, you know, and then they have this nice dance, and the you know, everything just falls away. It's just him and her, and it's lovely. Mm-hmm. And then they get announced as prom king and queen, and as an audience, we know why. And again, best thing that's ever happened to her. It's this slow motion, sumptuous shot of her, like you know, tears in her eyes, walking up to the stage. But we know how this is gonna go. And mm-hmm. the instant the bucket falls, the way the film turns from that moment, the slow motion stops being glorious. It starts being agonising. Uh, Brian De Palma's directing here and stuff. He does the split screens and the kaleidoscopic kind of lenses that he does and the colours, the red and the blue and all that stuff. It's really quite interesting because mm-hmm. it hasn't been that way for the rest of the film. So, but yeah, basically, long story short, uh, Carrie massacres the entire school. <laughs> And that's a bittersweet ending because, like you say, Carrie's been driven to this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not how we wanted things to go for her. Nope. Literally anyone, anyone can die, <laughs> which is another theme. Like Nobody's safe in any of these stories. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, the prom scene I absolutely love. And it's a, it's a big chunk of the film, really. Yeah. It's not a long film. Yeah. And it's set in Maine. I'll just drop that in at the end just because... Yeah, he's he's from Maine, um, Stephen King, and he does set an awful lot of his uh, books in Maine. There's a there's a lot of a lot of Maine in it's his his work. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's an interesting first work for him. Yeah, it's not what you would call maybe a mainstream idea. It's more indie. Mm-hmm. It's very effective. Though, yeah, with what it wants to do. Yeah, it covers a very small slice of time. Um, Mm -hmm. There's only a few key characters, and like I said, it's not very long either. It goes so fast that you get to the end, it's like, I can't believe it's already here, but I love it. Yeah. 
but it very much covers some of his big themes that come up time and again with his work mm -hmm. that he will revisit and revisit. I really like the film <laughs> a lot. If I was to do like a top 20 of my favourite ever films, it would be in that. Really? There's parts of it where I think, okay, that, that was a bit weird, but it doesn't detract from my enjoyment of it. Yeah. Hardly a complaint. Okay, so that's number one. <laughs> yes. Our second film for today, The Shining. I apologise in advance because there are an awful lot of themes in The Shining. It's a big old film. My grandmother and I could hold conversations entirely without ever opening our mouths. She called it Shining. I think everybody's seen The Shining. It's become part of the horror zeitgeist. Everybody mm. knows The Shining. There are lines that people know are from the film Red Rum, Come Play With Us Danny, and most famously, Here's Johnny. Yeah. Um, and it's often said it's one of the scariest films of all time. I don't think that's because there are that many scary moments in it. I think it's more this atmosphere mm, and the feeling that's honest. built throughout the whole film, this foreboding and this feeling of unease that's yeah. just built all the way through. The intro music is, is powerful and foreboding, so it starts you off that way. Yeah. Um, and I think some of the, the other themes early on are very eerie. Um, and then there's a maze in there in the grounds. We're made to feel like the hotel's also very much like a maze with Danny cycling through the halls and mm. this colour palette that gives the film its completely unique look. I mean, the carpets are horrendous. I mean, I would I mean, have picked horrible. out those yeah. carpets. The, uh, speaking on carpets, in the book, they're blue. When I read that, I was like, well, I'm going to imagine it as red because <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't seem right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think that there's very much the book and the film were two different things and it's well known that Stephen King didn't like the film mm. um, because of the way that um, Kubrick decided to go. Yeah. Um, so the biggest theme in The Shining is an unexplained evil force. Mm. There's lots of awful things happening in the hotel over the years Um some of which we see, the dead woman in the bath and the, the twins killed by Grady, mm -hmm. and the blood spurting from the lifts, and room th 237 seems to have this concentration of evil there. Um, yeah. And it's it's the room that Dick Halloran is frightened of and tells Danny to stay away from, and it's also where Jack sees the woman in the bath. Mm -hmm. And it's when Wendy suggests that they have to leave the hotel for Danny's sake that things turn most sinister. That's the evil force suggests that Jack must stop them from leaving in the form yeah. of Delbert Grady. Jack speaks to Grady in the bathroom and he asks him if if he was once the caretaker. And mm -hmm. he says no. And Jack says he recognises him from the newspaper he killed his family. And Grady tells Jack quite clearly that Jack is the caretaker and, yeah. and has always been the caretaker. I should know, sir. I have always been here. Which is more suggestions of this sinister force. This thing's always been there. Mm. Um, so Grady tells Jack that his daughters didn't like the overlook and one mm. tried to burn the hotel down but Grady corrected her um, and when his wife tried to stop him he corrected her too mm. could be some kind of history repeating itself here <laughs> and shows us that he was corrupted by the hotel just yeah. like Jack is being corrupted and by the end even Wendy can see the things in the hotel she's not really seen anything it's been Danny that's seen things and I don't know if Jack even sees that these things are weird that they're odd he just seems to accept these things but Wendy's yeah. not not really he's been involved he's almost in a trance isn't he yeah exactly end. he's been front and centre 
And I think as well, there's the picture right at the very end. What does that mean? Jack's front and centre, July 4th ball, 1921. Like, how is that possible because of who he is? But does that mean he's forever become a part of the hotel? Is it kind of like enveloped him into Mm. this force? There's a lot that's open to interpretation in the film. And I guess even at the end, you could choose to go, ah, they all just had cabin fever. It doesn't really mean much, yeah. you know. Yeah, but there's there's a lot there. Another theme, obviously, is the psychic and supernatural abilities that appear again here. Mm-hmm. Danny has um, a being, <laughs> Tony, who lives in his finger. <laughs> yeah, I know when you put it like that, it sounds really weird. Um, but he tells him things. So Danny knows things about the hotel he hasn't been told. Mm-hmm. And Danny converses with Dick Halloran, who was the cook, um, who is also psychic. It ran in his family and his grandmother had it and she called it Shining, mm-hmm. hence the title. And they can communicate without talking to each other. Um, And through his abilities, Danny can see things that other people can't. So he sees the twins and he sees the river of blood and he's more susceptible to these things. Um, And Halloran as well with his abilities, he sees from his home in Miami, which um, this is in like the Colorado mountains, I think. So he's a long way away. He can see um, awful things at the Overlook that terrifies him. Um, Mm. So he travels back. So there's this this running of of psychic abilities all the way through. Mm -hmm. Um, Another theme, now this is where we get into the book versus the film, um, is the alcoholism and substance abuse. Now, that is a huge part of the book. And you're reading the book at the moment, so you'll be seeing all of that. (laughs) that You'll remember it a lot better than me. But that's what he wrote the book about. Kubrick does not go that way with the film. No, not really. It kind of gets to the point where he's having a drink, but not really depending or dependent on the drink. Yeah, so it's, it's hinted at. He looks at an empty bar. He says he'd give his soul for a drink and these mm-hmm. then served from the full bar by <laughs> Lloyd. Yeah. It's, so at this point, I think that's when he gives in to drink, that's when we know that he's taken a path and he won't be coming back yeah, from it. Yeah, he's lost it. Yeah, so there's only <laughs> hints there. Um, and from that, from the drinking comes in the abusive parent theme. It's mm-hmm. hinted at all the way through um, that Jack's previously hurt Danny. Yeah, something in the book is quite foregrounded. It's hinted quite a few different times through mm. the film. So Danny asks Jack if he'd ever hurt Danny and Wendy, and Jack says, did your mother tell you I would, you know, and hints at the previous event mm. that that Jack's in, he's immediately defensive. So yeah. something's happened. Um, and Danny's hurt by something later on in the room 237. He's all bruised and his clothes are ripped and torn. Um, but Wendy thinks it's Jack. Straight away, she she doesn't doubt it, suggests basically that something of that nature has happened mm. before. In a way, I guess the hotel kind of turns them on each other yeah, as well because exactly. they're isolated and how could anything else possibly have caused these things? Exactly. And then Jack admits to Lloyd he accidentally broke Danny's arm three years ago by pulling him violently mm-hmm. um, and that it was, a, you know, it was an accident, it was a mistake. Um, but then by the end, he's gone full abusive parent and is trying to kill Danny and Wendy <laughs> through the evil force that's persuaded him that they need to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's the the last theme, which I'm going to discuss, which is writers and their issues. Mm-hmm. Jack's a struggling writer, we're told. You know, he has writer's block. He's going to use the quiet time that he has at the hotel to write. Mm-hmm. And we see straight away he's very reluctant for any of his work to be seen. He's verbally violent to Wendy when 
he's interrupted. I quite like that scene. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's quite good. Yeah, he's, he's not very nice to her at no, all. No, he's not, no. Um, and it's through his writing that Wendy learns the truth. Jack's truly lost his mind. Mm. Um, all he's written for pages and pages and pages is all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah. So that's the moment of like complete horror where she realizes, oh my God. Yeah. And for how long has he not been normal? This guy has lost it. Yeah. Um, and that's when things really start to ramp up. She knows she's got to get out. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think so many of his themes in it it feels like a Stephen King film, almost mm. like no others. The best way to look at it is to separate the book and the film because the film is yeah. fantastic. It's a fantastic piece of work. And there's so much open to interpretation, like you said. It's definitely one to watch. It's a Halloween favourite, shall we say. Mm-hmm. We're then jumping ahead a little bit to 1986 yeah. and Stand By Me, which is one of um, Stephen King's novellas it, based on his novella, The Body. I'm never going to get out of this town, am I, Gory? You can do anything you want, man. Um, and this is absolutely a coming-of-age tale. Yeah. Um, it's really well-liked, this one. Yeah, it's got that 80s feel to it, you know, proper 80s classic yeah. feel to it. And it's one of those that you can just tell right from the start that Stephen King, he writes kids so well. Yeah, It's like he can just get into their heads and how they think. Um, so this, the, the first theme, the biggest theme throughout the entire film is the coming of age. The kids are 12 going on 13. They're growing up, they're learning things about life. Um, so Gordy um, has experienced loss, his brother dying. Um, mm. Chris opens Jordy's eyes about how his family's reputation will keep him from getting anywhere, mm-hmm. um, about life's real prejudices that kids don't really think about, but the, you know he's they're starting to grow up and see these things, see life as it is. Another great theme in this, which comes up often in King's stories, especially the coming of age ones, is the power of friendship. Mm-hmm. So all the boys in this, they are there for each other and support each other. Chris and Gordy have this clear, obvious bond, um, yeah. which is lovely. When I first saw it, at least, I thought it was going in a different direction. <laughs> and they were really close. <laughs> yeah. I think they just understand each other. Yeah. They have this clear understanding that the other boys don't have. Yeah. Um, Chris stops Teddy at one point from dodging the train, saves his life. There's issues going on for some of these kids. It's like they're the only ones that are looking out for each other. Yeah. There's no one else in the picture really for them that's doing that. Yeah. And Chris tries to persuade Gordy that writing isn't a waste of time and that's just his dad talking, you know, mm-hmm. God gave him a gift so he's got to use it, yeah. you know. That's a huge thing. I mean, these kids are only, they're only kids, but that's a very mm. adult way of thinking. It's almost like Stephen King's writing to himself. Mm-hmm. He he writes about kids and kids' fears as if yeah. he was tackling his own Mm-hmm. And um, and this this is set in Maine. This is um, actually set in King's fictional town of Castle Rock. So yeah. they they're from Castle Rock. All these kids, um, and it's very much small town life in the nineteen fifties, um, which is the time that King grew up. So he he, he knows this. Oh, he yeah. knows this yeah. time. What the, what it was like. He's writing what he knows. He's writing his childhood, which is fascinating. Um, again, here you get bullies. 
um, which very much, again, some of these themes come hand in hand, you know, the, the, the friendship and coming of age and bullies, mm. those themes all very much all come together linked in when, when he uses them. Um, so you've got Ace played by Kiefer Sutherland, who's an mm. absolute dick. I've got to say Very it, he's just <laughs> awful. Yeah. Um, and he goes out of his way to terrorise the younger kids. Um, yeah. But even with the older ones as well, even with his own friendship group, there is no friendship between Ace and the others in his gang. No, he seems just to just like tolerate them, them yeah. in his in his way, you know, and that that's it. It's his way or no way, yeah. you, know? you know? He doesn't care about any of them. Awful, awful guy. Yeah. Um, and then you also get, again, in this, there's the hint of abusive parents. Mm-hmm. So we, we learn that Chris's dad beats him badly. Yeah. Uh, and Teddy's dad scarred his ear, holding him close to a stove as a very young child. There's like there's these hints of, of abuse all the way through. Yeah. I think it's interesting that King comes back to that all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't think he had abusive parents. That he was left as a child. His, His dad just dad ran out. Two, I yeah, think. he just said he was going out for cigarettes and never came back. Yeah. So I, I do that. That causes issues i think that yeah. that very much would stay with you all your life and it very much resonates in his writing mm-hmm. it's usually fathers that are the problem not always <laughs> we've had <laughs> harry's mother but it's there's it very much an issue with fathers. Yeah, she was channeling there. god so. <laughs> <laughs> the almighty father but this it's a lovely little slice of life stand by me yeah and it's quite sad. I, f- I find it really bittersweet at the end because you learn, obviously, you learn from the beginning that that Chris died. Mm-hmm. He was stabbed, um, trying to help someone. Yeah, actually doing good against the reputation that. Yeah, he, he had. actually became a lawyer, which mm-hmm. is lovely. And there's a lovely narration in this over the film with Gordy telling us, you know, what it was like to grow up at the time. And mm. I just think it's really bittersweet at the end because they didn't keep in touch. This, yeah. this bond that all these kids had at this age you know and he does say he never had friends like he had when he was 12 mm-hmm. but none of them stayed in touch and it's that's real life you don't it's very, very often but life, it's yeah. so sad it's just so you see this bond that these kids have and how close they are especially Gordy and Chris and then to learn that he hadn't seen him for 10 years yeah it's just it's just really sad I ended up with so oh yeah, <laughs> it is strange, and and there's something nice about it because it's a very quiet setting, very mm-hmm. picturesque setting, and it's, yeah, you know they're just going on a hike, really. I know yeah. they're going to find a body, but <laughs> yeah, they're going to find a body. Yeah, but fundamentally, even if you never had that, it takes you back to some time, you know, some kind yeah. of formative time in your life. Um, yeah, but one thing I read, um, Stephen King did see a friend die when they were hit mm-hmm. by a train. Yeah, um, he doesn't really talk about it but he wrote about it. Yeah, but you can see that, though. You can mm. you can definitely see that in the film, those brushes with death and with danger. Yeah. So that's Stand By Me. Definitely worth a watch. It's, it's one of his more innocent films. Yeah, they're not all horrors. No, they're not all horrors. This is definitely very much not a horror at all, um, but it's uh, definitely more innocent. There's hints of other things in it, but it's more innocent than it, a lot of his other films. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely worth a watch. Yeah, good. Um, right, okay, a couple of years afterwards, Pet Cemetery. Now, I hadn't seen this. I was expecting more pets. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this is very much a first-time reaction. What did you do? <laughs> what did you do? main thing I got out of this was the sense of dread and yeah. foreboding. 
and you feel it all the way through. So just looking at the first 10 minutes as an example, you get the feeling that there's a sinister series of events that is imminent. In fact, it's inevitable. It's almost yeah. like the universe has already predetermined what's going to happen to this family. This is actually what Stephen King considers his scariest book. Okay, that's interesting. He was not going to publish the work. He put it away in a in a desk drawer. He oh, wanted right. because he thought it okay. was so awful. <laughs> <It's pretty dark. laughs> it was just so dark that yeah. he just didn't think it should be published. And he would, was persuaded to, but he he wasn't going to. This is what he considers his scariest work. Right. Yeah. Interesting to know that because um, mm. a whole point I've made is, is about <laughs> that. Um, so, yeah, so we get the, the Creed family. They've moved to a new house um, in a remote setting. Um, mm-hmm. Never a good start to a <laughs> no. story. Um, also set in Maine, so it's even worse. Um, and there's a series of things that happen right in the first few minutes of the film. Their daughter, Ellie, runs to play on a tyre swing and that breaks immediately and she's injured. Um, Their cat starts acting weird and animals play a pivotal role in quite a few films as well, like Cujo as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And everyone's distracted by this cat and then by the girl on the swing. Um, And then I think he's one years old, I can't remember. Uh, One-year-old Gage, um, he runs out into the road and nearly gets hit by a speeding truck. And then there's a mysterious old man across the street, someone called Judd. He definitely knows something. Something's mm-hmm. up. And he's lived there a very long time. He's seen a lot of people come and go from this house. And something that we'll mention in a lot of films, again, is this town with a dark secret theme. Yeah. So, yeah, just, just as like an opening 10 minutes of the film, you're like, there's a path set for them here. You know mm-hmm. that something's led them to this point. Again, this unknown force, this universal evil force like pushing them in a certain direction um even after that i mean they hire this disheveled looking housemaid who's got this persistent cough and you just think something's up and and that's the sort of the first point i wanted to make just something's always up and it's this feeling of dread even though nothing's happened yet nothing bad has happened to these people yet you're just waiting (laughs) you know it's gonna happen And, and as the film goes on you get ellie the little girl having these sort of psychic abilities she has dreams and premonitions of things that are going to happen or that have happened to people that she hasn't been with um especially her dad and his mental state and stuff like that and um i was really interested by the idea of the road um in this film that separates judd's house and and the family's house it's not just a road it's an agent of evil. It's a highway of hell. Um, it's almost like it's it's luring children and animals into the road. It's 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 otherworldly. That road is based on a real road. So Ooh. when Stephen King was when his kids were younger, they lived in a house off a road like this, oh, okay. and his son nearly got run over. The same thing that happened to Gage. Yeah. <laughs> well, it basically nearly happened to his sonny. He was able to run and it was like scared the crap out of him because yeah. he had to run and save his, his son. Yeah. So it very much comes from that. Okay. Yeah, it's very much from experience, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. And I love how then he, although it is just a road and it is just a truck, but he makes these things that are ordinary really yeah. quite sinister. And again, another another trademark yeah like in the shining we shouldn't fear corridors but we do yeah it's just a hotel (laughs) or a hotel door but we do or a maze Mm -hmm. but we do um so in this one it's yeah it's like the road and the trucks that are on it they're kind of these faceless dehumanized things harbingers of death 
<laughs> yeah, there's a bit later on where his wife Rachel's trying to rush back to stop him from doing something stupid, and the tire explodes, and the ghost of somebody who I'll mention a bit later says mm. it's trying to stop you. The road's trying to stop you. Love that. My second point really was ideas of life after death. Yeah. Um, there's a scene in the film where the dad Lewis is explaining to his daughter about death because she's asking. Great. Um, <laughs> And he doesn't believe in anything, but to comfort her, he mentions some of the beliefs that, that people might have. But you can see behind his eyes, because of the events that are happening in this film, and at this point he has inadvertently resurrected her cat. <laughs> you know, just like you do on a weekend, yeah, yeah. accidentally I... resurrect a cat. I mean, it's the old man's fault, really, because he oh, told yeah. to do it. I guess it was just interesting that Lewis then was questioning himself, everything he thought mm-hmm. he knew or didn't believe in. And when his son dies, spoiler. Um, <laughs> it is awful. Yeah, it's really quite dark. No, no other film has ever done that. You're like, you, it always like nearly does it. Yeah. It's, you never no, see like these things actually hit happen. By a truck. Yeah, yeah is... you don't ever see it really. You think, Not oh my God, they did no. it. They went there. Yeah. When it happens, it's really quite shocking. Um, yeah. The film kind of then plays with the idea of if you could bring someone back. Would you? Would you? Um, but he knows that because he can, that he is going to try and do it. Yeah, it's um, that it's that thing. You know, oof. it's wrong. Yeah, it's, it's totally wrong. It's it's An not natural. But yeah, would because you? the daughter's put it in his head. She said um, God could take it back if he wanted to, couldn't he? And that's when he realised that he can play God. Here, yeah. Um, regardless of the consequences, but he says at one point, um, if he comes back like the cat did, I'll just put him back to sleep. You know, it's. The, it's not just grief, it's greed. Yeah, but I think they are hypnotised by grief. Yeah. The grief is so overwhelming. That, yeah, it, that they do it, anything. Yeah, it yeah. takes it takes all kind of natural thought away yeah. until you're left with, with just these things that you, you, you can't think clearly, you can't make good decisions because yeah. you are absolutely overcome by grief. Mm-hmm. And that's a good segue, actually, into just the last point. <laughs> it's not really a theme. I've just written the word disturbing. I don't, I don't really know how else to say The whole film, that pretty much it's sums up. It's very disturbing. And, and the dad basically saying he feels like he's going crazy and just not learning from his mistakes, blinded by grief. But his resurrected dead son, who he's already dug up and reburied and all sorts, then kills his wife. So then he buries her to resurrect her and it just goes on. I know you'd think by that point, the fact that he had to kill his son, you would think that he'd have learned his lesson from that. No. (laughs) But he's just, he's gone past the point of no return and it's a vicious cycle until everything he loves has been destroyed. But even regardless of, I mean, that's the main plot thread, but you know, the housemaid hangs herself. There's a jogger who gets knocked down and starts being a ghost. And then the cat coming back, that's scary. Then his wife, Rachel, has these flashbacks to her sister who had this like spinal that's illness. the most sinister thing I think in the film. She is I should say, actually, I should say she's played key. by a man, isn't it? Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, which just makes it more creepy. Oh, it's, it's just hideous, like this convulsing, cackling and then the, the dead boy coming back. It's like Chucky, you know, it's yeah. like, play with your daddy, oh, running around. Yeah, it's just, oh, God. Yeah, having never seen it and not really knowing what it was about, like I said, I thought there was more pets. I thought, was more pets. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you know, show me some cute dead animals, please. Um, but, yeah, like, it's really, really pushed the limit of what I thought and how dark a film could 
Go. Yeah, it is dark. <laughs> it's very dark. Uh, so it's yeah. It's so fascinating an idea though, that the that idea of grief. Yeah. Um, it's a what if story in a way. Yeah, what absolutely. would you do? What would you do? And and that last whole point about things being disturbing leaks into that anyone can die mm-hmm. trademark, you know, doesn't matter kid, cat, wife, yeah, husband, jogger, housemaid, Good. die, all of you die. <laughs> So yeah, oh, lost my mind. So yeah, that was a lovely little watch. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I bet you felt great after watching that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it, actually. It was it, it was cheap, and I think a lot of his films have been yeah. adapted sort of in a, like a lifetime hallmarky budget. It's one of those um, that's become a cult classic. Yeah. Um, Pet Cemetery is very much beloved by its fans, um, but it's very much got a cult status. It's it's by no means had, you know, all this money chucked at it. And, no, no. And, well, it's, been, yeah. it's been remade now and I'm, I probably won't watch the remake. No, don't watch it. Okay. It's awful. <laughs> Good. Cool. I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're then jumping on then to one, again, not had loads of money thrown at it, and that's Misery from yeah. 1990. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, you die. And I think it's probably one of people's favourites. It's a good concept for a story. Yeah, and it's just a, it's it's one of those that creeps up on you, you forget about it, but everybody goes, oh yeah, misery. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one of those. Um, uh, it is a really good film. Kathy Bates is something else. Um, she's fantastic. <laughs> I've, I've, I have to say this now. I'm just not a big Kathy Bates fan. That's fine. I love her in Titanic, so I. I I'd yeah. say that's yeah, that's the best I've seen her. And I do think she very much deserved the the Oscar for for this. She won Best Actress um, for Misery this year. Not over Julia Roberts, but mm. I think when you talk about the film and and the the decisions they made for it and why it is the way it is, you can see why she won. We'll, we'll go through it. So yeah, basically, um, you've got Paul Sheldon, who's a writer of the Misery Chastain series of novels. So again, this is writers and their issues, the mm. theme coming up again. Um, he despises his work. He, he doesn't consider himself a real writer. This is just schlock writing, you know. Yeah. He's, he's put his kids through college and all this, and he's got two houses and all this that his agent tells him. Lauren Bacall, fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but he just doesn't consider this this real writing um, so he's finished with misery and he's written a new book and he goes to this lodge um, that he always goes to and finishes his book mm-hmm. um, something that he considers proper writing worthy writing mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and he has a car crash because he decides to go out in a storm he didn't know there was a storm <laughs> but I mean it, it was like pretty bad snow all around the area yeah. so I mean you wouldn't you just wouldn't <sighs> It's not like a great Jack decision. Frost all over again. Um, and he uh, he crashes the car, and he's in a really bad way, broken mm-hmm. his legs in multiple places, and his arm, and all sorts. And Kathy Bates um, happens upon him, oh, yes. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, so you think. <laughs> and um, she pulls him out of the wreck. How the hell she managed to get him out, I don't know. I'm sure, I, I know there's a reason for it, and they do explain it in the book, I'm sure. But she's like supernaturally strong. <laughs> Um, so she pulls him out of the wreck and takes him back to her house and brings him back to health. You know, she bounds his legs and gives him painkillers and all this and comes across at first as this kind of a little bit kooky person. Mm-hmm. Very odd, but, you know, <laughs> fine. Yeah. Um, but no, 
<laughs> she's not. <laughs> just, so just no. Annie Wilkes is Paul Sheldon's number one fan. She's mm-hmm. obsessed with the misery novels, read everything he's ever written. Um, and it just comes to light more and more that she's not this normal person at all. Um, she has a lot of issues. Um, <laughs> and it comes to light that she's actually a very, very bad person. Um, mm. She um, she killed babies in a hospital. She, she was a nurse and she was jailed for killing newborns. Mm. Um, and... <laughs> you, not she sure has, why. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not, it never explains explain why, it, really. Yeah. Um, but you just keep getting these glimpses of, of like, of Annie's madness or something not normal. And mm. It keeps showing you these glimpses, and and it's always a close up as well. The camera does very interesting things in this film. Yeah, unflattering as well. Very, yeah, which is very good. Um, and the camera looks up at Annie, like implying this position of power and strength, which she absolutely does have because mm-hmm. Paul is bed bound yeah watching the um the documentary um last night actually it was interesting because it's james Carn who plays paul sheldon mm-hmm. and um what you see is 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 what you get because he was literally stuck in bed for 15 weeks so some of the looks <laughs> yeah, that so. you get you know he's like sick and tired yeah. was just real life because he was sick to death of being confined um in this place um so yeah very much annie does have this power and i think what makes her so scary as well is you don't know when she's going to flip Mm -hmm. she can can turn at any time and you just don't know what she's capable of either (laughs) um paul doesn't learn about her past killings yes yeah. um, until, until later on he's actually trying to get out yeah yeah <laughs> by that her, point yeah. you know she's she's absolutely mad um so a theme in this is the biggest theme in this is obsession very much obsession oh, yeah. everything everything leads from it all the decisions made are because of it um annie has lots of issues you know she speaks about her husband leaving and being lonely and finding the misery books made her happy so yeah. she found this thing and she locked onto it so misery's hers. It was, you know, it's this thing. And when she reads that misery's dead, she gets this new book, and she absolutely loses it. You dirty bird. Misery, yeah, exactly. As 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 if she's this real person that Paul's murdered her, and she calls yeah. her my misery, mm-hmm. you know. And um, and she makes this decision, and he, and he intends to keep Paul with her. She's she hasn't told anyone where he is. Mm. I think it's um, brilliantly written that the character's called Misery. So when she says my misery, you think yeah. there's a double meaning. Exactly. Um, so she intends to keep Paul there and he's going to write a new Misery lo- novel, bringing her back to life. She makes mm. him burn his new book, um, <laughs> which she can, it's all oh, the swearing in it and it's not worthy and it's terrible and it's, you know. Mm. Um, a lot of the horror here, it's from obsession but also arises from these hidden demons these inner demons that she's had mm-hmm. um that are hinted at because uh, we don't know why she killed babies we don't know what went on and it does go into a little bit more in the book um but but still you know yeah i think it's good though in a way not to give you the full picture yeah and she has these these blues at times there's a sequence where she has the blues and she's very quiet and she's got yeah. no life to her and 
and she has a gun. She says she's, you know, she's going to use the gun. She's going to mm. put bullets in it. Or she'll just get in the car and drive off. She she has a lot of issues, um, mm-hmm. quite clearly. Um, yeah. But she's deranged. She's absolutely deranged, <laughs> mental. Uh, and th- to be honest, I read the book um, last year, the end of last year. Oh, yeah. It is absolutely crazy. They really dialed it down for this. <laughs> the, the film is really dialed down. Oh, right. I'll look forward to that then. <laughs> the, the, the book is insane. She, she goes so much further. Oh, good. So th- this is like child's play, the movie compared yeah. to. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Um, But it's it's very much again the the same kind of themes come up. Um, but she's such a great villain. She's he writes villains so well. Yeah. And Annie Wilkes is is right up there. Yeah. And Kathy Bates was no one at the time. Um and he wanted it that way. Rob Reiner didn't want a star. Because mm-hmm. nobody knows what a number one fan looks like. This is what he was saying. Um, he wanted a star for Paul Sheldon because right. he was a famous writer and you would know what your famous writer looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but a number one fan's a nobody. You don't know who that is. So yeah, he didn't yeah. want a star for the part. And Kathy Bates wasn't one at the time. She wasn't known. Huh. Um, so I think it was maybe smaller then. But obviously Kathy Bates is a, a big star now and everybody knows who she is. Mm-hmm. This is very much a star making turn for her. Yeah. Um, she's she's the whole movie, really. Okay, so the last one then. Down mm, to you. Yeah, last one for today. Um very, very, very popular. Of course I hadn't seen it. Is um the original it now this is a mini series, but we're calling it a film. Um <laughs> in fact, Amazon Prime, if you rent it on there, it there's no gap. It just plays straight through, so it is a film. Yeah. So um this is from nineteen ninety as well. Kiss me, bad boy. And of the ones we've looked at so far, I think this one had the most tropes and trademarks of Stephen King. Yeah, it the, it's the Shining and it. That's what he's that's what he's known for. Yeah, the people who aren't necessarily fans as well, they would know the name of those two because yeah. they're so big. And quite often, the title is Stephen King's It. It's not just mm-hmm. It. <laughs> yeah, which I found quite hard to write about. Because I've written the word it so many times. <laughs> I know. <laughs> In fact, my uh, Microsoft Word has started capitalising the word it anytime I try <laughs> it anyway. So. <laughs> so I'm prepared. In our next episode, I will be doing the remakes. So I will yeah. say now that the, the points I'm making here will be the same ones I'm going to make there. But um, just obviously see how yeah, the time Yeah, we're doing a comparison difference. piece, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. See how they've changed. So I'm going to start by looking at the structure of this film i haven't read the book yet so i don't know how the book is structured but i imagine this is much closer in part one it's particularly non-linear which i wasn't expecting so we start in the middle of the story where the children are already adults and we're in a town called Derry in maine which is a trademark um a town with a dark secret which is also a trademark um six children have died we actually see one of them preyed upon by a vision of a clown. And, uh, yeah, we, we are introduced to someone called Mike, who very quickly runs to the phone and he starts calling people, saying that it is back. So you know we're kind of in the middle of something that's it's not new. Mm-hmm. And begging them to come back to Maine because something's terribly wrong. Remember your promise. So I like that we sort of start start bang in the middle yeah and we learn in a backwards fashion that something 
significant and traumatic happen to these adults as children. And as Mm -hmm. he rings each one of them, we judge from their reaction to the news and watch them kind of unravel back into their childhood selves. So they're all very Mm -hmm. successful and professional uh, people. One of them is a writer. Remind me, in this, because I haven't seen it for quite a while, do they actually tell you or, or insinuate that they don't remember Yes, yeah, yeah. They, they don't remember until he rings. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, all of the um, the habits and the fears they used to have as children, and they were, again, a big group of outsiders, mm-hmm. almost immediately come back. Uh, so one of them's got um, asthma, and all of a sudden he needs an inhaler. Mm-hmm. One of them had a stutter, um, and yeah. instantly they all are just reduced. And you think, God, what's happened to these people? Obviously, we kind of, we kind of know already it's this it. So, yeah, individually... As we are introduced to each of the adults, we flash back a little bit of time to go and see how they became part of this group that they call the Losers Club. And again, bullies are a big issue here. Not even the monster. That's it, yeah. They spend a lot of time on them and the bullies more than them and the clown. Which makes it even more of a coming of age as well, because everybody everybody knew a bully. Yeah, sorry, some of the other characters. Ben, he's quite overweight. Uh, Mike is African-American, Richie wears glasses, Bev's got an abusive father, again, Mm -hmm. abusive parents coming in. Stan, I'm not 100% sure what his sort of flaw was, but he does kill himself when he finds out that it is back. I think he was, it's a weakness, I think. He he was so scared, that was was his weakness, his flaw was his... He was just scared. He was so scared by it, but he saw the lights, didn't he? He saw something the others didn't see. Right, okay, yeah. And it terrified him and he couldn't he couldn't cope. Yeah. So yeah, that that's kind of part of one. Jumping back and forth to them as kids, their first encounters with an evil dark force, trademark, mm-hmm. um, that takes the form of a circus clown named Pennywise who feeds on children's fears and lures them into the sewers to their deaths. What's really fascinating <laughs> is most people were not frightened of clowns before it <laughs> being scared of clowns wasn't really as much of a thing before the 80s <laughs> yeah almost like stephen king has uh, blemished what was something quite joyous yeah and now so many there's people no return from the clowns. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's a great example of um and annie wilkes is too of the sadistic lunatic villain mm-hmm. they come in different forms um, so yeah, part one covers them deciding to confront the fears, confront the bullies, confront it, and then believing that they've destroyed it. And that's a very coming of age thing as well. You know, they overcome their weaknesses, I suppose. Yeah. Um, part two starts from the middle, goes to the end. <laughs> I've just said here, it's not as good. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> weren't as big a fan of the second part. The hairstyles are scarier than the plot. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> why is Bev kissing everyone? And the ending is a bit naff, but a bittersweet ending all the same. Mm-hmm. Part one's much better. I want to talk about Pennywise, Obviously. played by Tim Curry. A lot of what he did contribute to why people are afraid of clowns. Yeah. And the look of the clown as well. Um, it's a very classic clown look. It's very colourful. Yeah. It's not monstrous. He's a sort of humanoid, just a man dressed up, it yeah. would appear. Um, but I think that makes his motivations seem even more sinister. Even mm-hmm. away from the story, it makes him creepy. 
There's and almost a, a paedophilic. He could be a paedophile. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you said it before me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and, the, and the choices in the voice, you know, it's just this gravelly Brooklyn accent, you know. Mm-hmm. He's like, very wise of you, Georgie. <laughs> yeah, he could be just a man. <laughs> yeah, and the, the smile and the laugh that go in contrast with that, it, the unpredictability about him, that's very... Um, Mm-hmm. That's very scary, and the fact in general that he's tormenting children and preying on them and giving them visions and stuff. Um, and Tim Curry's great at doing these sort of cult classic villains, you know, with the Frankenfurter. Yeah. Um, I say villains, they're not all villains. Um, Long John Silver, Wadsworth, the, the cult classic films that he just yeah, he's nailed. he's very much in most of his films is the standout part, <laughs> even yeah. if the film is itself fairly mediocre. Mm-hmm. He stands out and is of a higher quality. Yeah. My only complaint, really, is that Pennywise isn't in the film really very much. He's in it for about three minutes, I think. I think that's why they made much more of the new ones. (laughs) Yeah. I think that was something that they needed to do. Yeah. In fact, in the opening credits, it said special appearance by Tim Curry. And I thought, oh, right. It's almost like he was a cameo rather than a character. But obviously, they did choose to go down the the bullying and the friendship Mm -hmm. route. Uh, instead so yeah in the end it doesn't feel much like it's about it and in a way then the confrontations don't really feel that dangerous and high stakes because you've not really had that time to yeah feel that he's tormenting them enough um and the other thing the last thing uh, which i will mirror in the other episode as well is the special effects so this is all pre-cgi yeah it's much more creative practical and what we'd call special effects not visual effects mm-hmm. um, and because they're less smooth and polished and blended into the film it sort of adds to the horror um a, a bit like how pennywise is more tangible he's more sort of physical and there as mm-hmm. a person it's more like nightmare on elm street in a way very yeah. 80s kind of horror and that can be quite scary but there's so many different things they did i, I just wanted to list a couple of ways they achieve it so more basic stuff the props like when the showers come out from the the walls at one mm. point and stan's heads in the fridge in part two they're all just all practical things they've done with props then you've got puppets and costumes so you've got the skeleton in the pond and the hand coming out of the drain uh makeup like the teeth and the contact lenses and i think her name is mrs kirsch she's great in the uh, remakes but the old lady who's not alive mm-hmm and things in the editing, like cuts and dissolve, just to make Pennywise appear and disappear. Just very basic yeah. stuff that adds in. They slow down some footage, they speed up some footage, they play some stuff backwards, like a photo album that's suddenly moving pages back and forth. And mm-hmm. Superimpositions, like there's a bit where Pennywise's face is on the moon, or you can see the deadlights in his eyes. And then my favourite one, even though it's not the best in the film, but I like how it's integrated, is the stop motion stuff. Um, so when yeah. he has to fit in and out of a tiny drain, he's done as like a clay model going in and out of the ground, and the ground's moving and stuff. Yeah, they, they were very creative yeah. in terms of what they could do. Because, like to be. you say, they couldn't do a lot <laughs> of what they would would have wanted to do, yeah. um, which made them have to be insanely creative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but like I said, it's very 80s, and it makes me think of other things like Labyrinth, you know, with the puppets yeah. and... And that did the same thing with some stop motion. Um, yeah, so I, I, I will I will be returning to Derry to it uh, to it and um, to see how thirty years later, yeah, um, how they retackled this in terms of the structure and the character of Pennywise and the special effects. What I think 
defines Stephen King for me is his ideas, his concepts yeah. are fantastic. Even if the execution maybe isn't, you know, top notch, yeah. the actual concepts and his ideas for things are something else. And ideas are always scarier than, you know, they're the things that slither in and stick with you. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of something. You can see that with all of the films we've covered. It's these fantastic ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why I think he's so um, adapted into film and TV. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. at the minute, there's, he is everywhere. The money he must be making because they <laughs> are adapting so much of his work. And mm-hmm. um, Next time we'll be covering things like Gerald's Game, which is one of his newer ones. And mm-hmm. they've just done Doctor Sleep, again, one of his newer ones in the last couple of years. He is so adapted and there's so much more on the slate as well of what they want to do yeah. of his work. And he's still writing. And he's still writing. <laughs> he's just churning them out in a good way. Yeah, he really he really is. He's very prolific. Yeah. Um, and But it's his ideas. I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah. His ideas are so fantastic and, and people just l- can't get enough of them. Mm. I always forget not just how much he's done, but some things and some films, you completely forget that they were him. Yeah. Which is which is not in any way a you know a criticism, but like we're covering next time, the Shawshank Redemption is yeah. one of his. You know, no, not a hint of horror really. But that's great because it shows how much variety he actually does have. I know everybody says he's horror, he's horror, mm. but he's but he's definitely he's not just that just at all. A writer, isn't he? he yeah, he's done yeah. so much horror. Yes, has defined a lot of his work because of it and The Shining being so big. Um, but there's so many more ideas in there that aren't horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very good. Yeah, so that's it. So that's part one. So yes. we've given you an idea of what we're covering next time. Um, we're coming forward, so we are going to be covering some some more of his um, more recent work. Um, this was very much his classics, you know, the, mm-hmm. what got him started, the, yeah. where his fan base came from. You know the likes of The Shining and, and Pet Cemetery and yeah. it. Um, it. They all very his fan base has very much come from those works. Um, but we're moving forward for part mm-hmm. two, um, more to today's Stephen King and how he's adapted um, by today's filmmakers. Mm. Yeah, the um, the quality of the filmmaking definitely bumped up from here. I mean, we're covering the number one IMDb film next time you know Shawshank mm-hmm. is at number one so yeah yeah should be really exciting I'm yes it will be very exciting so um catch up with us then um we mm. hope you've enjoyed this episode um, yes. Matt where can they find us well where can't you find us <laughs> um, you can find us on our website cinechat.co.uk forward slash podcast or across the social media just search for cinechat podcast that's a tongue twister more than it was ever before uh, or you could email us at podcast at cinechat.co.uk uh, so yeah, so, yeah so that's it Stephen King part one <laughs> join us for part two yes um, and we'll see you then it's bye for me and it's bye from me 